What do you love about music? To begin with, <laughs> everything. great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I talk to electronic pop wizard Dan Deacon. Plus, we'll review Wilco's seventh album, and the latest from indie rockers, Grizzly Bear. Support for Sound Opinions is provided by founding sponsor Alltech Lansing and their new Octave Air speaker system, a wireless 80-watt wall of sound for your iPod. More information at alltechlansing.com. Sound Opinions and Alltech Lansing want you to be the critic this summer. Win an all-expense paid trip to Chicago to attend the Pitchfork Music Festival with an opportunity to meet Jim and Greg. Runners-up can win an in-motion max from Alltech Lansing. Enter to win at soundopinions.org. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the eighth wonder of the world. The flow of the century. Oh, it's timeless. Ho! H to the is O, B to the is A. That's the anthem, get your damn hands up. H to the is O, B to the is A. Not guilty, y'all got to feel me. That is the hip-hop artist known to the world as Jay-Z, the newly independent artist known as Jay-Z. A cornerstone of the major label system for the last uh, decade plus has sold tens of millions of records the former president of Def Jam Records, an architect of what we know as modern hip-hop, declared in a recent interview that he is going independent, following the route of Nine Inch Nails and Radiohead as uh, major artists in recent years who have decided that the major label system is not for them. Now, it's important to note that uh, Jay-Z recently signed one of those 360 deals with Live Nation, so he's going to be part of that Live Nation entertainment empire. Doesn't, remain- that, doesn't that sort of put to the lie his statement that I will be, <laughs> quote, a completely independent artist when you're in bed with the biggest music promoter in the universe? Well, what we'll see. Does that mean that Live Nation is going to put out Jay-Z's records? He didn't say. What we do know is that he has been working on the third incarnation of his uh, Blueprint series of uh, hip-hop albums with Kanye West. I mean, that's an incredibly successful collaboration. Jay-Z, in many ways, made his name with those Blueprint albums. He's working on the third volume. That is going to be a highly anticipated record. And uh, how Jay-Z is going to put it out is going to be one of the big news stories of the next year. Part two of this, Jim, is another major hip-hop artist, and uh, this is one of those instances where you rarely see an artist at the peak of his career, as T.I. is, going to jail, (laughs) which is exactly what has happened. Uh, T.I. last year put out a record called The Paper Trail, which is still in the top 100 on the Billboard charts. Uh, Singles from that record are still in the top 100 of the singles charts, and this week he went to jail. He's serving a one-year, one-day prison sentence for gun possession, And uh, when he gets out, he'll be on probation. But his career is going full steam ahead, but he's going to have to observe it from federal prison. I imagine it will have some impact on his social life, at least. (laughs) I hurt myself today. 
Hurt by Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails, and it's nice to know that he's doing something to help one of his fans who's been hurting. Reznor has been using the internet in some of the most creative ways we've seen in recent years from any major artist. The last couple of releases he's put out, he's done through the internet. If you want to pay for them, fine, pay what you want. If you just want to download them, you can do that. Really innovative in that way. Now it's a two-way street. He became aware of a fan who's 27 years old, Eric De La Cruz in Nevada, who needed a heart transplant. And as with so many people today, the U.S. healthcare system was letting him down. He did not have the money to do it. His sister had been a, a CNN anchor and had set up a website to try to raise some money. It was moving very slowly. Trent Reznor hopped on board trying to mobilize the fan base. A $300 donation got fans access to a pre-show sound check. $1,000 got you backstage for dinner with the band. $1,200 came with two tickets and more VIP treatment. It was a neat idea, and in one day it raised more than $260,000. The total now is well over $650,000. The goal that uh, De La Cruz's sister had set for him was $706,000. That's what he needed to get a new heart. It seems as if Nine Inch Nails fans are going to give it to him. So sleep my darling, and I will keep all the bad dreams away. My darling, right from the start. Sad news in the world of rock and roll. The uh, man who is singing on that song from a record called The Palace at 4 a.m., Jay Bennett is dead at the age of 45. He was found dead in his home in Champaign, Illinois. An autopsy investigation at the time of this broadcast was inconclusive. We may know more in future days about exactly how Jay Bennett died. But what is conclusive is that uh, Jay Bennett was a great, great musician. I think one of the finest musicians and uh, producers of the last 20 years, a man who was called upon by many artists to contribute to their records, ranging from country artists like Alison Moore to the jam band Blues Traveler, but he will perhaps best be known for his work with the band Wilco. A lot of people have a picture, Jim, of Jay Bennett in their mind based on the movie I'm Trying to Break Your Heart, the Sam Jones documentary. At the time when Jay was being ousted from the band Wilco, his tenure in that band from 1994 to 2001. He was a key part of three major albums, Being There, Summer Teeth, and Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. And that movie sort of documented the end, and Jay and Jeff Tweedy battling it out in the studio. And it kind of painted, I think, a skewed portrait of what kind of a person and what kind of an artist Jay Bennett was. Well, you spent a lot of time with him, Greg, as the author of a biography on Wilco. An incredibly talented musician, cliche, but it's true. He could play any instrument he picked up, Mm -hmm. mandolin to mellotron. What was he really like? Well, you know, like Tweedy, in a lot of ways, he was a romantic and a perfectionist and uh, loved music. I mean, the the man was uh, smitten with this stuff. Uh, He loved tinkering in the studio. He loved being in the studio. He loved being around music. He loved being around musicians. He loved helping people. He never turned anyone away that I know of. Uh, He was an incredibly 
generous person. At the same time, many of his friends said that, you know, there were moments when you just hated Jay because he was mm. he was tough to get along with at times. And I think we saw some of that in the movie. But I think, it, as I said, it's somewhat skewed because uh, the generosity of this guy and the talent of this guy was undeniable. Well, you know, Robbie Robertson could be a bit of a jerk as well. Sure. But there's no denying that when he was with the band backing mm-hmm. up Dylan, there was a magic that came out of Dylan. You know, would Tweedy have gotten where he is today without Bennett? Yes, but he got there quicker and in really distinctive style because of Bennett's contributions to Wilco. Absolutely. I think uh, Bennett gave Jeff some tools that he didn't have in order to expand outside of that alt-country ghetto that Jeff was in for a little little time and really expanded the sound and Wilco has flourished ever since for, for many reasons, but I think Jay Bennett played a huge role in taking them from one spot to another. I think there's only one way to pay tribute to Jay Bennett and that's to play some music. Uh, Pie Holden Sweet, a song from I think the apex of the Tweedy Bennett collaboration, the Summer Teeth album from 1999. A song think, that meant enough to Bennett that he named his recording studio in Urbana Pie Holden Sweet. Really sums up Jay Bennett's talents. Uh, in tribute to Jay Bennett, dead at the age of 45, here is Pie Holden Sweet from Wilco on Sound Opinions. There's a whisper I would like to Holden Sweet by Wilco from the 1999 album Summer Teeth, a key testament to Jay Bennett's talents. Let's uh, move to the present now and hear what Wilco is up to today. Are you under the impression this isn't your life? Do you dabble in depression? That is Wilco the Song on Sound Opinions from Wilco the Band off of Wilco the Album. 
there's a bit of a trend there. Hey, Mr. Cott, <laughs> what is Wilco up to for their seventh studio album? Unusual from the path that they've followed the last couple of years. They've been recording in this fabled studio loft on the northwest side of Chicago here. You and I have both been there. A mm-hmm. magical place it is. A lot of the recording was done there, but they also uh, got out of their comfort zone and went pretty far afield, working for part of the time in Auckland, New Zealand at uh, Neil Finn's studio and uh, mixing some in Valencia, California with Jim Scott, who's mixed the last couple of albums. Amazingly, this is the first Wilco album out of seven where the lineup has been the same Mm -hmm. for two in a row. As we said, Bennett was in, Bennett was out. Drummers have been in, drummers have been out. Second guitarist, second keyboardist, Mr. Tweedy likes to mix things up. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that both you and I were on the record. Consider him uh, in the realm of a Dylan or a Neil Young for his generation of singers and songwriters and a fascinating journey it has been. What are they doing now? Any new Wilco album, you're wondering. New direction, new sounds. Let's play a song from it, and then we'll come back and give our opinions and grade it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale here on Sound Opinions. This is called Bull Black Nova by Wilco on Sound Opinions. It's in my hair, it's on my clothes. Bull Black Nova from the seventh Wilco album, Wilco the Album. <laughs> Still have a hard time saying that without cracking up, right? It's it, very funny. And actually, you know, it, it is kind of a wink. It's it, it's kind of cool to hear some humor from Wilco because I think maybe people perceive this man as being somewhat serious. You know, yeah. Jeff's a pretty serious, Jeff Tweedy's a pretty serious guy and, and, and writes very serious, introspective, some would say sad and mopey music. 
on this album, they almost are winking at themselves by titling it Wilco the Album. And Wilco the Song is essentially a song about consolation. Turn on your stereo. Wilco's going to cure your ills, baby. We're going to help you through yeah. the night. Are you under attack? Wilco <laughs> loves you. Uh, which is kind of neat. It's sort of like heavy metal drummer, but with a bigger message in the, the, the power of music to inspire you and get you through tough times. I actually think Wilco the Song is one of the best songs Wilco has written in the last uh, several albums. I think... Uh, this is a record that, after this holding action of Sky Blue Sky, I think that was a record where it was about, okay, you know, we've got this great band, let's just play some music together in a room. In this record, they tried to expand it a little bit. There are more colorations in the song, and there's a lot of beauty on this record. And I think it's going to be really easy for a lot of fans to underestimate this record yet again. But I think the, the melodies on this record are beautiful. The sentiments are... Again, one of consolation. But then you have a song like Bull Black Nova in the middle of it, and you're going, God, you know, we're talking about blood in the sink, blood in the hair. Yeah. This guy's done something terrible. Well, this is like the murder fantasy yeah. of Via Chicago acted out, and afterwards he's got the corpse in the trunk, yeah. which is like Eminem territory. <laughs> yeah, I know. But Tweedy pulls it off, especially with, with that strangled vocal performance and then this television-like guitar explosion. Right. I, and I think, Jim, I think what this does is give the album some context. It's put these other songs about finding some consolation, some solace in a very anxious world. And and this is the song that says, there are terrible things right around the corner. Well, as you know, <laughs> Mr. Cott, having written a book on Wilco, there's been a narrative for every album. Mm -hmm. You know, early on, Mr. Tweedy's trying to establish himself, break away from Uncle Tupelo. In the middle, he doesn't want to be typecast as an alt-country guy. Then he goes Pet Sounds with Jay Bennett on Pie Holden Sweets and the songs from Summer Teeth. Then he goes all art rock, and then he discovers <laughs> kraut rock. This is a summing up, which mm -hmm. is why I think it's called Wilco the Album. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of that art rock via Bull Black Nova. There's uh, some kind of country pop. What there isn't is anything new. Now, mind you, each of those songs is executed as as well as can be done. This is this is a fine mm -hmm. album. I'm going to recommend to buy it on the mm -hmm. Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale. But I think that Jeff Tweedy is waiting to figure out where he takes this band next. He's been so many places over seven albums. This doesn't break any new ground. I would agree with you up to a point, but I think Bull Black Nova is a genuine surprise. And I think Wilco, the song... The sense of humor exhibited that in that is a genuine sense of surprise as well. And I would agree with you on the rest. It is sort of a summing up. But you know what? This is a really good band. He's almost playing it like an orchestra. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a wonderful thing. I'd, I'd say buy it. Double buy it from Jim and I on Wilco, the album. We're going to be back after a short break on sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a conversation and a performance from artist Dan Deacon. But you and I, I think we can take it. All the good with the bad, make something that no one else has Deep 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Next up, we're going to talk with Dan Deacon, an artist who got his start in upstate New York, moved to Baltimore, created an entire scene down there built around his laptop computer and his vintage keyboards that he got out of trash dumpsters (laughs) and created a, a whole new way of approaching electronic music, dance music, creating a scene where basically the performer was in the middle of the audience more of a ringleader and a co-conspirator rather than a performer. Absolutely one of the most ambitious forces in the dance world today, Greg. When we saw him last, he was touring behind a DVD called Ultimate Reality, which was basically just him performing with this psychedelic surrealistic video of (laughs) Arnold Schwarzenegger as Conan the Barbarian. This time, he had 18 people with him on stage, and we sat down with him and got a performance from this huge ensemble at Metro in Chicago. We are thrilled to be here at Metro with Dan Deacon. Hello, Dan. How are you? And behind him, what now what is it? I've read many accounts of the size of this ensemble. It's a core of eight people you're playing with, but it can grow to 18 at times on stage? There's two mallets and three uh, drummers, three guitarists, four synth players, myself, and someone doing visuals. That is a big band for a guy who is a solo electronica performer. (laughs) I guess so. In the popular imagination, anyway. It's the smallest number of people to realize the pieces live. The pieces from your second full album, Bromst, Mm -hmm. which is a real departure from your debut, Spider-Man and the Rings, but I think a lot of people don't see ultimate reality as the connective tissue. Yeah, I agree. That's the first time that's got brought up, and I'm really glad that you said that. Which I really enjoyed. I mean, you, you were touring with a couple of drummers mm-hmm. and, and incorporating more live instrumentation and wonderful uh, video of the governor of California yes. behind you throughout. The fantastic governor he is. <laughs> Bringing us to great places. Right, right, right. In, in his Conan the Barbarian role. Immortal. Great which piece which of he cinema. should be utilizing as governor. Oh, much more. Absolutely. I think if he ruled the same way that Conan would have ruled, it would have been... A bit more ruling. How did, <laughs> how did you get here? How did you get here to this ensemble from what you've done before? Uh, well, I never really wanted to play solo. It was just sort of what... I mean, I did not want to do it. It was just sort of all I really had available to me. When I first started touring, I you know, I didn't have a driver's license, so I would tour by public transportation, and it's a lot easier to tour as one person with two suitcases than taking over an entire bus and losing yeah. thousands of dollars. That, that guy agrees as well. Yeah, exactly. You, you got on the road after you had gotten this master's degree in mm-hmm. composition. You went to college in upstate New York, right? I did. I went to SUNY Purchase, where a lot of the ensemble. So how do you get well. from classical composition to hitting the road with a, basically a laptop and a keyboard? I mean, I guess the program that I was in was very sort of make what you want of it. And a lot of the stuff that I focused on was computer music and electroacoustic. And the teacher that I had, Joel Thome, was really open to you know the pop format he worked a lot with zappa and dudes like that so he didn't exclude the pop world from the greater art music world at large so i think that's what sort of steered me in that direction did you feel in any way limited by the fact that you you had made a number of like avant-garde sounding discs early on and then moved big time into uh more of a pop realm for lack of a better term with uh, spider-man of the rings how did that transition take place I got something that I could record vocals with, and that made it a lot easier. The only reason the first records have very few vocals is because I didn't really have a means mm-hmm. to do so. 
I, I guess I was writing a lot weirder music back then, but there's still a lot of like beat oriented and, you know, tonal based pieces on those records. I think the only thing that makes it those albums seem so weird is that there's no focus to them. It'll go from like a piece for sine waves or a piece for like a screaming choir into like a weird instrumental dance music jam. I think you were saying at one point there was a, as, as I recall, you were saying that one of the albums or one of the uh, tracks consisted of every Aerosmith album or a tra- every, a track, every from track from every track from Aerosmith's Permanent Vacation, and it was stacked <laughs> on top of each other, basically. Yeah, they would all start at their starting point and then just end as they end. That's the only way to listen to that album. Isn't that oh, one of the no, later that's a, that's rotten a beautiful albums? record. It's Permanent Angel, Vacation. Ragdoll. Oh. A pantheon of hits, though. <laughs> Especially when layered on top of each other. 99 cents on iTunes. Well, so it's better that way, all at once. Just kidding about the iTunes thing, but it so, is for So selling. you go from this setting where you're, you're, you're basically writing these scores and creating these very avant-garde recordings into a situation where you're hitting the road and if people have not seen a Dan Deacon show, it's, it's an experience unlike any other. For a long time, you were setting up in the middle of the audience, and it almost has this communal kind of religious aspect to it. I mean, mass celebration uh, surrounding this performer. How did you figure out that style of performing? Was that something that you immediately wanted to do? And, no. And, and I, what, what tipped you to go in that direction? I think a lot of it just came from, you know, I would tour, you know, more than half the year and spent most of my time on the road and just... After doing the show after a while, you, I don't want to say get bored of it, but it grows tiring and you want to try to expand upon it and change it. And, and the one thing I notice is that, you know, when you do perform by yourself, the main thing that you're communicating with is the audience. And I want to start incorporating the audience. And then I started realizing that the venue is something that you also can work within. And, you know, when you don't, when you play to, you know, I used to play to recorded tracks and I would do the vocals and the noise stuff over it. But, you know, the drums and the bass lines were permanently set so there wasn't a lot of room for improvisation and the only way I could really improvise was with the audience or with the confines of the space so I think that's when those sort of theater games and activities started emerging was when I started thinking outside of just the music and more into the context of the show at large. And now the performance seems to be incorporating maybe those the two sides of you in a lot of ways the more improvisatory aspects of the live performance, but now you've got this huge ensemble here as well to sort of maybe realize some of those uh, classical composing aspects of your music. I'd say the biggest thing that the ensemble brings is the a freedom to the music where, you know, before there was very few spaces for error, and it's sort of nice when we make a mistake because it just reminds me that it's good for there to be mistakes. Like, I don't know, does that make any sense? Do you see what I'm saying? Like hearing the, the songs exactly the same night after night for like six yeah. years got a little a little tiring, and now hearing them more like, oh, the bass is a little bit louder, or I can't really hear the bass, and it's sort of I don't know. As much as it's, it was really hard getting used to it first, but then it you know that human element is very refreshing. I absolutely hear you. We had to go review Britney Spears last week, <laughs> and it was as if she was not even in that room. You know what I mean? It was all on autopilot. The, the only thing that happened that was different any night of the tour is when some fan ran on stage. Like the night after we saw it, we missed it. God forbid any spontaneity would happen. There's but. some really great recordings of the 
the direct mic recording before it goes into the auto-tune. Yeah. Oh. And those are really, really beautiful recordings. <laughs> I'd love to hear that. Well, let's, you know, before we lose too many members of your huge ensemble to dinner, can we, uh, can we get a song from you? <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll do the track Get Older. Is that sure. okay? Sure. sure. Cool. I'm going to go up there.
Wow, wall of sound. Uh, get older. Live at Metro here with uh, Dan Deacon and a very large band. That was a uh, that was a pretty powerful <laughs> sound you get with Thank that you. with that group of people up there, Dan. Well, the PA here is certainly helping us quite a bit. And we got to talk about. We, we talked about your uh, masters in uh, composing in upstate New York. You went down to Baltimore, and that's really where st- things started to happen for you. Uh, yeah, definitely. In the last four or five years, talk about Baltimore. Talk about that old warehouse that you guys sort of took over, called Wham City, mm-hmm. uh, made famous by one of the breakthrough songs on your <laughs> on your first proper album in a lot of ways. Ah, uh, well, about six or seven of us, I can't remember, moved down there right after college and. We still wanted to live in a city, but we didn't want to live in New York seemed like, or Brooklyn. It seemed like right after school, everyone just moved straight to Brooklyn or Philadelphia. and wanted to live as cheap as possible and live in an urban setting, but not a city that was too big or too bustling. And Baltimore just seemed perfect and found a cheap live-in warehouse space where we could have shows and just sort of started organically growing from there. So you're basically squatters in this place? Or? No, no. We were legal, <laughs> legit tenants throwing illegal, illegitimate shows. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, that, and, and you built up quite a following. I mean, there were, there were hundreds of people coming to the shows, I guess. Or, yeah, it was, it was... I mean, the warehouse itself was called... Uh, I don't want to say it because the owner is a horrible man and likes to sue people. But um, the building had several show spaces. Um, I don't know why ours has stuck the way that it has. Probably because we put it on all of our flyers and we're really flagrant about it. But... And it had, I mean, I don't know, it was, it, I think it was more than the shows, it was just sort of the weird, creepy, surreal sort of atmosphere that the place had. And I guess since we just moved there and we started doing this, we were these, like, insane, weird dudes that just, like, it appeared. I think that sort of was the general impression of, like, where did these people come from? <laughs> Has that scene petered out since, uh, since the, that heyday before? I would just before? say it's more changed and augmented. We do a lot more stuff legitimately and... We're a lot more connected into the Baltimore arts community rather than just this weird rogue entity that we were before. And, you know, and as we've aged and as we've developed more as, you know, a collective and individuals, it's sort of become a lot more amorphous as to where the focus lies. If it does lie as a collective or as a group of individuals that just use the common moniker or brand. And I think the few things that bring us together as a collective would be like our festival wartscape or our webpage, I can't really think, or the box set and stuff like that. I can't. And you still collaborate with a lot of those people. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, several members in the ensemble are in Wamp City. uh, I think half of Baltimore is in the ensemble. (laughs) 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 And the other half is upstate New York. Uh, You know, when you listen to Spider-Man and the Rings, I don't think uh, the the classical training you had is as obvious. When you listen to something like the piece we just heard, Get Older, uh, the name that's being thrown around again and again in reviews, I often think by people who haven't actually heard him, is Steve Reich. But there is something about the... the, I get a lot of Reichian references. Yeah, well, Um, you know, it's something about that Glock or or marimba tone. Yeah, I think, I mean, he definitely championed mallets and new music and definitely owe him a lot for turning me on to the power of mallets was he an inspiration oh yeah i mean definitely i'd say more terry riley in regards to the Mm. the minimalists yeah but uh i don't know there's something about the physicality of percussion the ensemble is mainly at its core from track to track you know percussion and synths yeah about four percussionists and four keyboardists mm -hmm. so i don't know I mean, I'll take any reference to anyone considered <laughs> well, a, it, it's a master pretty, of all time. So yeah, sure. Uh, you've you've gone to this from 
I mean, you were getting your gear out of dumpsters, out of garb, you know, discarded gear. I don't think, mm-hmm. you know, great music on the cheap at the start. Well, have you <laughs> looked at some of the stuff on that stage, Greg? It's still very eBay up yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean uh, that in a compliment, yeah. I understand. I mean, a lot of it has changed with people buying the records. It tends to bring in income, and with income, you can buy equipment and experiment more. And I guess a lot of people like to save money, but. You know, it's not going to be worth anything in a few years anyway, so we might You're as well just buying it. toys. Tools, important, useful, valuable tools. Uh, Dan, talk a little bit about the fact that, you know, a lot of people use you as sort of like a poster boy for, you know, the viral artist, the ultimate, the, the guy who's, who's made it on the net. Uh, a lot of free music out there. I didn't know I was that poster boy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, here you are. You're, you're being named one today. I, I do remember talking to a few people when you played the Fitch, Pitchwork Festival in 2007, and, and, and people were stunned at the number of people that came to see your set. Uh, I don't think it could have been predicted in terms of, if you look at the traditional measures of the record industry, uh, you know, radio airplay, uh, sound scan scales, uh, sales, none of that seemed to factor in to the fact that you were, even at that point, uh, much more popular than people pr- perhaps realized. What would you tell to an artist now starting out and saying, you know, I want that kind of audience. How do you, how do you go out and get that side of an audience without essentially selling anything? Just start booking shows in your house and find other people who book shows in their houses. And, you know, a lot of this scene emerges from people who, if they can't find an outlet, they need to create their own. I think that's the the main ethos of DIY is just creating your own venue and creating your own space, your own niche and your own community out of that. And then as you create that community, it meshes with other communities. And then as long as you keep at it and you keep, presenting your work in the proper context and you create the context, there's very few things that can hold you back. And it also seems like a, the, the live thing is a, a big aspect of this. It's one thing to record music and put it out there, but it seems like you got on the road and, and yeah, showed I think people that's, what you could do. You know, there's, I think digital art these days is, is very worthless. and People can find, see what I mean? Um, <laughs> people can find you know, any band and any album they want at any second of the day. The only thing that has an actual supply and demand is the live performance. There's a very finite number of performances an artist can do outside of their own city. So the more you tour and the more you build up a following, like the way I like to do it was when I first started, I would try to play every major city at least four times a year. Mm -hmm. And then after that started to grow, I would try to do it three times a year and then two times a year. And now I'm in this period to try to figure out what to do from here. You're going to do a second song for us, right? Yeah, we'll do... um, We'll do a track called Balto Horse. And, Excellent. Uh, and uh, we'll do it now. Okay. okay.
You are listening to the Dan Deacon track Bolto Horse, recorded live at Metro in Chicago. You can listen to the track in its entirety at soundopinions.org. To comment on our conversation with Dan Deacon or to share any of your thoughts, call our hotline at 888-859-1800 or email us at interact at soundopinions.org. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with our review of the new album by Freak Folk's Grizzly Bear. Support for Sound Opinions is provided by founding sponsor Alltech Lansing and their new Octave Air speaker system, a wireless 80-watt wall of sound for your iPod. More information at alltechlansing.com. Be a critic like Jim and Greg. Win an all-expense paid trip to Chicago to attend the Pitchfork Music Festival courtesy of Alltech Lansing and Sound Opinions. Runners-up will win an Alltech Lansing InMotion Max speaker system. Enter at soundopinions.org. While you wait for the others to make it all worthwhile, all your useless pretensions are weighing on my time. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You're listening to the track While You Wait for the Others from the new album by Grizzly Bear, Vecatimist. Vecatimist, that's an island off the coast of Massachusetts, right off of Cape Cod there. And it sort of served as a focal point for the new album by this Brooklyn quartet. It is the third album from Grizzly Bear. It began as a bedroom recording project by founding band member Edward Drost and uh, grew into a full band in 2006 when they came out with the record Yellow House, a much acclaimed record, got a lot of love from the blogosphere. Now uh, a record is getting a lot of attention, not only from the blogosphere and the internet crowd, but being hailed in uh, some major publications as a possible frontrunner for Album of the Year. Let's find out what we think about it. But first, let's hear a track from it. It's called Two Weeks from Grizzly Bear on Sound Opinions.
That is Grizzly Bear with two weeks from the third album, Vecca Timist, on Sound Opinions. You know, Greg, I think there are a lot of similarities between what Grizzly Bear is trying to do on this record and what we've been hearing out of the Pacific Northwest in terms of modern folk rock. I'm thinking Fleet Foxes, I'm thinking Blitz and Trapper, wonderful kind of campfire, acoustic harmony, acoustic instrument sing-alongs. But Grizzly Bear, being from the East Coast, from Brooklyn hipster haven, <laughs> you know, they're adding laptops and a sort of weird digital lo-fi production style that has these kind of hiccups. Plus, they are way influenced by Jeff Buckley. So hmm. instead of traditional vocal harmonies, you're getting this kind of slippery serpentine singing going all over the place, hard to follow the melody. <laughs> Are you starting to get that this album drives me crazy? I, I am, yes. I, I do not understand what all this talk of Masterpiece Masterpiece is. There are some moments of quiet beauty on this record. Southern Point is one of them. A haven on the southern point is calling up. A haven on the southern point is calling up. But, Mr. Cott, there are also some bouts of pure inertia, hold still and foreground, and then there are those weird, slippery, slimy, you know, it makes the incredible <laughs> string band sound like bubblegum pop. I keep thinking of the chipmunks on Ecstasy. Uh. Dory and Fine for Now hate it. You know, right on the cusp there, those good couple of moments, I'll say it's a burn it. Otherwise, it's a trash. Well, you're being so descriptive, and I think that's part of the beauty of this record is that you can be so descriptive even though you hate it. I... When I listen to this record, I can almost picture the room that they made it in. I can smell that room. I love the way that they, they sort of create their own world. It's an odd record. You know, it's an interesting that this uh, band gets so much love because they're not particularly accessible. You know, there's a couple of amazing songs on here. The one we played two weeks, I think, has got a great melody. The one we played at the top, While You Wait for the Others, those are almost pop songs. The rest of it, I will agree with you, there's some difficulty in maybe getting into it. But I, I tell you... When you're in a certain mood, this record really hit me. It was one of those, you know, rainy nights, and I'm listening to this record, and I go, this is just perfect for uh, a perfect record for being shut in on a rainy night. I pop a couple of Valium when I'm in that mood. <laughs> you know, I think when, when you're looking at a, what does a record need to do in order to succeed as an album, and I think it needs to create its own world, and I think Grizzly Bear creates its own world with this record in a really haunting way. I'll agree. Not, not a lot of pop songs, but I think in terms of just atmosphere and beauty and detail, I think it's all there. I think it's one of those records that if you pay close attention to it, it will reward close listening. For that reason, I got a rated to buy it. So a buy it for Grizzly Bear from Mr. Cod, a burn it for me, only because you need to hear it because everybody else is going to be telling you it's a masterpiece all year, <laughs> and you better figure it out for yourself. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, we're going to do a 180 turn from Grizzly Bear. We are going to present the joy, the celebration of disco and tell you why it is the unjustifiably most maligned art form in popular music of the last 50 years. Greg, as always, Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with some help on the Dan Deacon segment from Eric Butkus and the folks at Metro in Chicago, and our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia. We just like to call him Tori the Boss. 
On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. Hey guys, this is Jesse Stern from Los Angeles, and just wanted to say, great job, I'm catching up on the show via podcast, just finished the uh, review of Britney Spears' new album, and I wanted to say, I've got, uh, I hear a lot of people that are saying that they only want to hear indie rock, don't want to hear you covering other styles of music, and I want to tell you that I really appreciate the variety that's on the show and would even ask for more of it. But I think that would probably alienate the rest of your listeners. <laughs> but just wanted to say thanks and uh, keep up the good work. Not the baddest girl i ever seen. Hey, Tim and Greg, uh, this is Jason calling from Cincinnati. Generally love the show. Uh, I do have to say that I've got a problem with um, you guys reviewing hip-hop all the time. I don't necessarily dislike hip-hop, although I do dislike most of it. It's dead, it's unoriginal, it's totally inorganic. All hip-hop is produced in a studio. If a song is clever or if it happens to cross over and become a hit, it's usually because of the lyrical content or uh, what seems like worship of Kanye West. I know he's you know, from Chicago, and it's maybe a Chicago thing, but Kanye West is uh, not God, despite uh, what he has to say. And as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing more sad and ridiculous than a couple of middle-aged white guys listening to rap. Thank you. Okay, 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 Oh, hi. Uh, this is Carolee Morrison in Chicago at the moment, uh, having just listened to your broadcast on WBEC. And my comment is <laughs> your feature with Nelson George reminds me that the best way for critics to get known is flatter each other online, on air, in print, whatever, despite both of your best efforts to prime Mr. George into saying anything noteworthy on your show, his comments remained so banal. Yawn. Later, fellas. Yes, good evening. This is Eric from Springfield Gardens, Queens, New York City. And my comment is, I just heard about... Uh, the uh, Nelson George uh, about gas power. I asked him, you know, what separated Michael Jackson 
from another singer he had produced who will remain nameless. He said ass power, and ass power is the ability to stay in these chairs and get the work done. And he said Michael just had an incredible work ethic. And uh, the ability to sit is also important in chess. It's called Dispice, S-I-D-F-L-E-I-S-C-H. I prefer Dispice to ass power, but it's uh, either way, they're interesting. Thank you. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.